If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. Brian McClanahan Show, episode 485. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N. McClanahan.com. Give me that email address while you're there. I'll give you a free ebook, free audiobook, Forgotten Founders. Great stuff. Also, you can support the show by going to McClanahanAcademy.com. Free to enroll, just like it is to give me that email address. And you get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. We already talked about it at the beginning of the show, so go out there and do that. Buy one of my classes there. You help keep this podcast going, help keep the lights on. Click on that support tab at BrianMcClanahan.com. Same thing. You can throw a few pennies my way, get a book plate. For one of my books, autograph, what that is means I autograph it, send it to you, stick it on one of the books. I've got nine of those. The Jeffersonian Tradition is the most recent. It's a great book. Same thing with Southern Scribblings, another great book. Go out there and get those books. And as always, share the podcast around on social media. Rate it wherever you get your podcasts. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. And let people know this is a good show. And that's how you do it. Word of mouth is great. It's the best way to bring the show forward. Slower but it's a good way to do it because I get good, dedicated listeners out of it, and that's what I want out of this more than anything else. Okay, let's talk about the topic of the day, and I'm gonna. this will be the last time I bring up this, at least this week, this debate with Michael Anton and what is conservatism. So we started off with Wilmore Kendall, and we, then we went to Clyde Wilson and the Constitution about 25 years apart. And um, now we're moving forward. We've gone forward nearly 40 years now, 35 years. Here we are in 2021. And we're talking about conservatism again. What, is it, what does it mean? What is it? How do we define it? What should we do as conservatives? And so this was my agenda in writing these pieces for Chronicles. I was asked to do the first one because I've been very critical of the 1776 Project. You can go back in this podcast and find the episodes I've talked about it because I've talked about it several times. This wasn't the first time I said something about it in the Chronicles piece. I said it several times on this show. And I've also talked about the 1619 Project, and I've been critical of that, even though I pointed out in both of them, there's both things in it that I could agree with, at least in substance. But one of the things they they both have in common is this proposition nation view of America. And so after Michael Anton attacked me again, Paul Gottfried wrote a response. And because Paul Gottfried is the editor-in-chief at Chronicles, he was able to write a response to American greatness, which is where the attacks have come, and um, discuss some of these things. We're not seeing anything new. These, these debates are nearly 60 years old. right? So the question is, should we keep engaging in this? Well, I would say yes. Because if we cannot unite on real conservative principles, then we are doomed. This is the whole point of my piece. I think Michael Anton just missed that. If we cannot unite 
on what makes American conservatism conservative, well, then we've lost our way. If we're going to say conservatism is simply not going as far as the leftists with their own ideology, then what are we really conserving? That's the question I would ask Michael Anton. And to answer his question, and I've said it in the last one, if the founders were racist, then he would say we can't admire them. And I would say, why? What does that matter? It doesn't matter to us. We don't hold the same views as they do about slavery, segregation, racism. And we don't hold those same views. So why should we be held accountable for what these people did or what they said when they said a lot of other good things? I mean, do we do the same thing with Abraham Lincoln? He's a racist. But yet, Michael Anton and other Claremont, Claremont people, Jaffa, uh, Larry Arn, Alan Gelzo, they worship at his feet. I, I really think they have statues in their houses of Abraham Lincoln uh, that they worship at. I mean, not just something to have, you know, interesting, but they worship at these statues, spread holy water on them, and have little altars and next to them. I mean, this is what I think they go to. So this is important, right? I mean, this, this battle is important. And so I want to cover this essay by Paul Gottfried in his response. I'll get to my response eventually. I've got so many other things to do that writing these responses is tough. And I mentioned that Anton's written 10,000 words. I've written you know, 4,600. But here we go. He says this. Uh, the title of this essay, and I love it, is Kudzu and Equality. <laughs> I love it because it gets into what that is. and It's a great analogy. He says, amid what looks to be a return to the Harry Jaffa Mel Bradford debates of the 1970s with a new cast, it may be useful to clarify my own position about what we are, what are proper conservative principles. So, what is conservatism? This is what Gottfried's getting into, and he's, I mean, I to say that Anton is Jaffa and I'm Bradford. I mean, that's lofty praise to say I'm Bradford. I mean, it, um, you know, Anton. Uh, you know, Jaffa, Jaffa and Bradford were better than both of us. I'll just say that in terms of uh, the depth of their knowledge and understanding. And even though I'm not a Jaffa fan at all uh, in any way, um, he and, and Bradford, their debate set a standard higher than Anton and I can ever espouse to. I will say that. I am expressing my views as an independent scholar, but one who has obvious paleo leanings. The present debate with Michael Anton began with Chronicles Magazine, of which I am editor-in-chief, published an article by Brian McClanahan critically dissecting the 1776 commission created by President Trump as a response to the New York Times 1619 project. Since McClanahan also expressed sharp disagreement with the Claremont Institute, whose views were reflected in the commission's work, Anton rose to the defense of his comrades, and a blistering rejoinder aimed at McClanahan. Well, this is true. I mean, he took direct aim at me. Although one finds little difference between the two combatants in terms of the current political stance, this is also true. There does seem to be a veritable chasm separating them philosophically. This is true. Anton got very upset uh, when I called him stupid. Um, his positions are stupid because they are not far they're not clear enough he, he doesn't understand what is going on here and I think that's what Kendall pointed out now he says well I understand the revolution but what he doesn't understand is what he's doing is actually siding with them on so many important issues we can't win we can't win that's the whole point their differences center on much on such matters as how to interpret the all men are created equal proposition the declaration and how they evaluate the work of the 1776 Commission. The latter, not incidentally, affirms the political theoretical position of the Claremont Institute. Well, this is true. 
If McClanahan and other paleoconservatives have not rushed to acclaim the commission's work, it is not because they're either America haters or bad sports. This is also true. I mean, look, if Anton had simply gone out and said, hey, let's see what I've written about America. I've never... America's great. The, the traditional America, I love it. I love America. I love the idea of federalism, of self-government, of self-determination, of liberty. And I said as much in my second piece. He keeps saying, I don't understand if McClanahan likes America or not. I mean... Does he, not, does he not read? Has he failed reading comprehension? I, I don't know this. I mean, but I said it so many times. I, I, don't, I don't get it. So this is where he just gets into gratuitous slams of yours truly for no reason. Because if he had actually read what I wrote, he would not even say these things. For the last 20 years or more, the paleo right has been systemically excluded. This is true. From the conservative establishments, conferences, publications, and televised discussions. Throughout that period, they were never invited to participate in anything of note that establishment conservatives did, and they were certainly not asked to help determine the content of the 1776 Commission. This is also true. To insist the uh, designated outsiders enthusiastically support statements they had no role in debating or drafting is, in my opinion, an unreasonable demand. Absolutely. If I didn't, if we didn't have a role in writing this thing, why should we just, oh, this is great, when we disagree with it? Although there are overlaps between McClanahan's position and my own, I may be closer to Claremont in one critical respect. I would not underestimate the importance of the process by which older understandings of American political institutions, e.g. the view of early Protestant settlers that they were building a covenanted community guided by biblical morality, yielded to the natural rights thinking present in the Virginia Bill of Rights, the Declaration, and early American state constitutions. Evidence that this natural right theme gained currency around the time of the American Revolution is too overwhelming to be denied. Well, I agree with that. But how committed were they to it? That was my point. They might have said it, but they were never really committed to it. And um, Kevin Gutzman, who I actually cited in the original piece, contacted me and he said, look, there's other things to point that out too. Just go to this, 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 and this. Um, it's true. I mean, they weren't committed. And the quote, and I'll get into this when I respond to Anton, where he, oh, but Jefferson said this, and he really would have believed this. Well, no, he didn't. If you go look at Jefferson's entirety of his work, he was never committed to it. Uh, Goodsman's book on Jefferson has a whole chapter on that. He says, well, Jefferson did try to, I mean, this is his point, Jefferson did try to do that, but he did it without ever really accepting it. He did try to think, well, maybe people are equal, but he never really accepted it. And any time evidence was presented, he scoffed at it. That's not true. That doesn't work. So how committed was he to this lofty egalitarianism? And then you have John Taylor of Caroline, who was the most Jeffersonian of all the Jeffersonians, backtracking pretty quickly. I mean, within no more than 20 years maximum after the American War for Independence, saying, gosh, we were stupid to say these things. I mean, no, no, no. This is The French Revolution changed everybody's minds very quickly. He says, unlike Wilmore Kendall, who I talked about on Monday, whom I deeply respect as a political thinker, I did not view the evolution of the concept of individual rights as something that resulted from a series of unhappy derailments, an interpretation that Kendall outlined in his book, Basic Symbols of the American Political Tradition. Nor am I persuaded that because American leaders did not always take the implications of natural rights thinking seriously, it has not influenced us from the country's founding onward. One could be a slave owner like George Mason, John Taylor, or Thomas Jefferson and still have contributed to the acceptance of the notion that all men are created equal and have the same inborn individual rights. Well, yes, they unleashed it. They opened the Pandora's box. They said it. It didn't mean, and 
People, people have run with that, including the Claremont people, and, and Gottfried's going to bring that up. And although John Locke invested in the slave trade and prepared a constitution for the Carolinas, allowing for slavery, his social and political ideas did operate in the long run to enshrine the notion of inborn equal rights. Again, true. All this stuff is true. What they're saying here is true. My point always was how much they firmly believe it. Did they really believe in what they said? And clearly they didn't. This may owe as much to the historical circumstances in which these ideas were introduced as they do to the ideas themselves. But my grudging recognition that the concept of equality grew in importance during the founding period is not the same as an uncritical affirmation. Anton's highest value is, for me, highly problematic. Indeed, one that must be guarded against as a threat to where what were once settled social institutions and to what remains for our constitutional freedom. We may have to challenge the statement that Lincoln, as interpreted by Harry Jaffa, taught Americans about their founding principle in its purest form, but that later misguided advocates of equality distorted the principle's meaning. I mean, this is, again, so... Jaffa saying, look, Lincoln said what the founders really believed, but did they really believe it? That's my whole point. Did they really believe it? No, they didn't. The evidence is all over the place that they didn't. If they really believed all people were equal, then, again, I pointed out Constitution of Connecticut, 1818. Anton says, here you go, they did this. In the same year, they prohibited blacks from voting. They didn't believe it. Or they believed it in a way that would not be egalitarian, which Wilmore Kendall points out. It would have been, hey, look, as citizens, we have these rights. If you're a citizen, you have these rights, or you have these natural rights. Okay, as citizens, you do, but not if you're not. The rights of Englishmen, right? The pursuit of equality is always an unfinished product, project. Excuse me. Even Lincoln, through most of his life, would not have pushed his ideal as far as, he, as did later egalitarians. Promoting equality with or without what are taken to be universal rights is like planting kudzu. The plant just keeps spreading until it devours entire gardens. Not just entire gardens. Drive anywhere in the South, it it devours entire ecosystems. It is awful stuff. Nasty. It's ugly. Just a bunch of vines everywhere. And you can't get rid of it. I'll say this again. Promoting equality with or without what are taken to be universal rights is like planting kudzu. It's that idea of equality. Promoting it is like planting kudzu. What has come from our public dedication to universal equality and inborn individual rights of the last century was at least implicit in Lincoln, as George Carey points out in his introduction to the paperback edition of Kendall's Basic Symbols. Carey cites Lincoln's response to the Dred Scott decision in 1857, in which the future president explains that the equality clause was of no practical use in affecting our separation from Great Britain. Rather, it was something that existed for future use. So, it really wasn't there uh, at that time. In other words, they weren't really committed to it. But, of course, it would come out for future use, which is what Lincoln did with it. Right? What's the abolitionists were doing? The abolitionists were the ones that were pushing this idea of the Declaration. And you go back and read anything from the 19th century, this is what you find. This is why Southerners started talking about it the way they did. Wait a second here. Is this really what the founders thought about this? Nah. And they rejected some of these things. But nobody really talked about it. Certainly in their private letters, they, well, I mean this, but they did, again, they weren't dedicated to it. Dedicated to it. They weren't. The determination of that future use devolved on the progressives and other builders of the welfare state. Equality in practice has been far from a static principle. 
And particularly if the moral justification for one's country is predicated on anything as intoxicating as the equality principle. Progressives happily quoted Lincoln in the Declaration, and they did so, as far as I can tell, far more often than they cited the German philosopher Hegel, who some Claremonters have lately been blatantly blaming for the theoretical foundations of the American welfare state. In a famous Memorial Day address in 1919, Woodrow Wilson praised the soldiers who fought for the Union and tropes that might have come from the Claremont Institute. Now notice, he says Wilson, which is a progressive. Because of their moral courage, these soldiers, according to Wilson, had brought about the spiritual reestablishment of the Union. Now, incidentally, Wilson, Herbert Crowley, and other progressives all viewed Lincoln as a God figure. True. They did. What they thought Lincoln did was fuse Jefferson and Hamilton together. That was Crowley's The Promise of American Life. It's what it was. Right? Ideas take on lives of their own as they find expression in changing historical context. Why must a society dedicated to democratic equality and universal individual rights end its efforts to realize those ideals at exactly the point where West Coast Straussians decide? The left may have a valid point here. This is what I asked, too. I mean... The Claremont Institute, for example, declared their political morality to be at work in Martin Luther King Jr. and the Civil Rights Movement. But that changed for Claremont when the movement's interpretation of equality was thought to have gone too far in the direction of racial quotas. This leads to the question, are those associated with the Claremont Institute uniquely authored, authorized I'm sorry, to explain when and how far the principles of equality and natural rights should be applied? This is what Clyde was pointing out in the essay we covered yesterday. Who gets to decide how far these things go? Public administrators, activist judges, and the media are all competing for that power. And the present, and for the present, these rivals may have the edge. It may be a fool's errand to claim that same, the same ideals as those espoused by the left, but call for one's own interpretation of them as the theoretical rhetorical kudzu continues to spread. This is my point. If you're going to play on the same field with the same rules as the other side, and they get to determine everything. I mean, they, they created the game then they get to set all the rules. It's their house, their stadium, and they say, come play with us here, and we've recruited all the best, and you get whatever's left over so we can bulldoze you continuously. Well, then we lose over and over and over again. So we create our own. We stop replying to them on their terms. If in some alternative universe, paleos have been invited to contribute to the 1776 commission, we might have said something like this. Blacks have survived as a large, viable minority in America and may have risen over the decades and centuries out of poverty into relative affluence. Despite undeniable past discrimination, American blacks have lived in this country with more material and even political benefits than blacks in just about anywhere else. Today's black society would be far less dysfunctional were it not for the persistence of violence and anger among the black underclass and the scapegoating of whites by black celebrities and more inexcusably by the white left. This is all true, right? We paleoconservatives have consulted would have focused on the responsibility of black society to improve its own condition and have pointed to Booker T. Washington rather than King. Well, there's a reason why I, can say I put Booker T. Washington in my politically incorrect guide to real American heroes. You see, as a model teacher for taking this step, ethnic communities should be the key actor in dealing with their own social problems and they should not be allowed to ascribe their favors to other Americans. That benefits neither the minority in question nor the rest of us. And I think that's a nice summary. Despite our festering racial problems, moreover, it's a bad idea to conceptualize our history as a, around a long, unfulfilled promise of equality. 
It is a promise that, according to the establishment conservative narrative, Americans were required to get rid of partly through a devastating interseen war and then through the military occupation of the defeated South. Notwithstanding the happier ending that is attached to the 1770 Commission's alternate text, this authorized conservative reading of American history incorporates elements of the 1619 Project, as McClanahan correctly tells us. Both supposedly conflicting stories stress the need for atonement for having failed to live up to America's initial promise of equality, and this came through bloody tribulations until we paid the God of equality its obligatory tribute. We have now attained some measure of redemption according to those who drafted the 1776 Commission report, but this has still not occurred for the obsessively anti-white left. It is entirely possible to extend citizenship to groups without invoking the magic ideal of equality or engaging in ritualized atonement. In fact, that is the way most societies, including the United States at least intermittently, have added citizens for expanded or expanded rights for reasons of prudence or expedience. Now, let me back up here, because this is the whole point of my... Look, we're playing on the same field. Again, he's reiterating the fact we're playing on the same field, and if we keep doing that, we're going to keep losing. And so Godfrey points out here, hey, look, we can expand rights out, but it doesn't have to be this way that we're talking about doing it. In the 19th century, British Tories rightly considered the effect of extending the vote to religious minorities based on whether these reforms would hurt or benefit the constitutional order. In the Reform Act of 1867... The British Tories, who had then held a parliamentary majority, doubled the electorate. The reason they gave had nothing to do with natural rights or an abstract equality. In proto-populist fashion, British conservatives were incorporating the working class into the British nation. They were also unmistakably trying to add workers' votes to their coalition of Anglican clergy and landed gentry. He concludes, he says, I must confess that I am bemused by Anton's condescending attitude toward McClanahan's invocation of tradition. What exactly is the Claremont Institute's appeal to individual rights and equality other than homage paid to its own tradition? In the present escalating crisis in which the totalitarian left is going for broke, neither of our traditions may suffice to keep the enemy at bay. We may therefore have to resist together despite our theoretical differences. And I agree with this, right? I mean, look, we're all going to the same camps, but we have to, we have to understand that the principles matter. And if we want to win, then we have to get off their field. Anton says, packing up our bags and going home. We can't do that. Well, we can. We can create our own things, our own institutions. Our own, we don't have to react to everything they say. That doesn't have to happen that way. And I think that's the whole key to this and understanding what's going on here. So I appreciate Paul Gottfried for responding. I'll respond in a longer way somewhere sometime in the next month or so. I will do it. It's just going to take me some time to get there. But uh, certainly... We're going to keep playing the game on the left field. By the left's rules, we're going to lose. The essays earlier this week, which were longer, got into this. And so I I wanted to wrap up this kind of three-part discussion of this with Gottfried's shorter article because I think he did a nice job explaining what would have happened or what, what could have happened had some other things been involved in this debate over 1776. Look, 1776 was an important year. John Taylor of Caroline wrote for the Spirit of 76, which was a great newspaper in the early 19th century in Virginia. What was the Spirit of 76 to John Taylor, though? Well, it was states' rights and federalism, <laughs> independence and political self-determination. That's the Spirit of 76. In fact, Forgotten Conservatives in American History, a book I wrote with Clyde Wilson, is dedicated to the principles of 76, Right? We're talking about two different things, though. And our principles of 76 are much more important. They're not leftist-driven than those of Michael Anton, which are leftist-driven. That's what we have to figure out and where we have to get rid of that and come to the other side. All right.
Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you next time for the next one. See you then.